This is the Simi Sarah Show On Demand. Subscribe now on iTunes. Listen to the show each weekday 10 to 2 on 980 CKNW and through the Radio Player app. All right, we continue to follow the blockades and the threatened blockades around with the anti-pipeline protesters at the B.C. legislature this morning. Much more peaceful today with the injunction secured by the Speaker of the House, Daryl Plucka. So the the doors of the legislature are plastered uh, with copies of this injunction now, and it is a sweeping injunction against blocking the doors and trying to block people from going in uh, to that building. Also, specifically in that injunction, uh, telling protesters you cannot cover up security surveillance cameras around the building, which they were doing uh, earlier this week, which is, to me, is really dangerous. One of the things that they use those security cameras for at the legislature is to spot people who are overdosing on this on the grounds of the legislature. Just like in Vancouver, there is a big overdose and drug addiction problem in downtown Victoria. And that's one of the things that those guards respond to all the time at the legislature, people who are overdosing on the grounds. They were covering those cameras up. A lot of people think Horgan should be tougher here as the premier. Here's the hot question today. Do you approve of Premier John Horgan's handling of the anti-pipeline blockades? Would you say, yes, he's being prudent and patient, he's doing, he's doing fine? Or would you say, no, he should be tougher uh, in sending a tougher message on these blockades? At CKNW on Twitter is where you can vote on that today at cknw on twitter give me a follow while you're there at mike smith news on twitter s-m-y-t-h at mike smith news on twitter leave me a voicemail today on the buzz line about this one your thoughts on these blockades if they've affected you i'd love to hear from you 604-331-BUZZ is the number 604-331-2899 we continue to talk about the anti-pipeline blockades the good news is the blockade of the west coast express commuter train has come down uh the train's set to roll again uh, this afternoon but not before we saw lots of people thousands of them in fact inconvenienced yesterday and again this morning have a listen to this isabel krupp she was one of those sitting on the train tracks she says they're trying to make a statement and that means some inconvenience and that means some sacrifice for people and uh, we think that that should motivate people uh, who might have to miss their train or miss a day at work. That should show people how important the struggle is and that is something that we all need to be in solidarity with. Motivate them to do what? Motiv- motivate them to do what? To do to to support you for blocking them getting to work or picking up their kids? I don't understand the strategic logic of what they're trying to do. How is this supposed to get people on their side? It doesn't. Have a listen to this, too. Here's a, This was posted on Twitter a short time ago. This is one of the leaders of the blockade uh, saying that they'll, they're not, they're not uh, standing down here. Um, so we're not retreating. We're not, we're not quitting. We're not leaving. Um, our heart is still with Wet'suwet'en, and our heart is still here, wanting to block every single means of transportation um, and, and try to disrupt what's going on right now because of how, how, how much we've been disrupted in the past since uh, contact. Yeah, sure. They just disrupt every single mode of transportation. It ain't over. He was right there. I suspect that we'll see more of this in the days ahead. Let's talk to Cheryl Ashley now. She is a former two-time Maple Ridge City Councilor. Uh, former member of the Maple Ridge Pitt Meadows School Board. She is running for the B.C. Liberals in the upcoming election in Maple Ridge Pitt Meadows, which is a crucial seat in the legislature, in my opinion. I'm very pleased to welcome her. Hi. 
Hi, Mr. Smith. Thanks for having me. And I also would like to mention I'm very happy that the commuters won't be disrupted on their way home. Mind you, thousands have already probably had to make alternative arrangements. So it's little comfort to those that have already been inconvenienced. But I understand the protesters on their own accord left. This was not due to government action or CP Rail action. So it's not to say they're not going to return. But for now, yeah. it's hopeful that people will be able to get home and enjoy their long weekend. What's your opinion of how Premier John Horgan and his government have handled this? Well, you know, it is very critical because although we agree with civil protest and all of that and we hear what he's saying, we're in support of how we have to respect it, and we do also agree that politicians should never be telling police how to do their jobs, but police are able to do their jobs when they're actually giving the appropriate tools. And injunctions are that tool. It was interesting to see that Daryl Pleckless leaned into his B.C. liberal roots and immediately enacted an injunction to protect the legislature, which then protected the politicians to go to work. And it would be nice if John Horgan worked with all of his colleagues around, across the floor and his own party and figure out how can that be done for the rest of British Columbians? How can they be assured that they too can go to work? I haven't heard much around other than, you know, hope from our own MLA Minister Baer saying that she hopes CP Rail has the ability to deal with it. Well, hope is something you bring to the equation after you've tried everything else. So okay, we are well, really asking for that to happen. What is it that the BC or the NDP is going to do for British Columbians? Okay, well, if Horgan was here, I'm sure he would say right now that he's, he's already denounced protests that breach other people's rights. And well, that's an obvious announcement that everybody should make. Right. And he's, he also agreed to a meeting uh, with some of the First Nations leaders there in order to end a CN rail blockade in northern B.C. that had been shutting down Prince Rupert and Kitimat, and that blockade has come down. So do you acknowledge that he, there's been some progress there in, the, in his leadership, or do you, what, what do you think he should do precisely? Well, I always give credit where credit's due and whatever effort he's making, we have to acknowledge that. But he's not doing enough because people are still being inconvenienced. There is still a threat. Out here in Maple Ridge and Pitt Meadows, we are already underserved in the transportation area. For people to have to face a possibility of Tuesday morning after a long weekend not being able to go to work in a province where every single person requires every hour of wage that they earn to make sure that they can make ends meet, 500 people stopping the economy essentially from performing to its maximum is not acceptable. And so I would expect a leader to be out front and center and having that concern, sharing what they're going to do. Share. Have you phoned the Prime Minister of Canada to say, what is it across the country that we can do he, he to make to the, sure that He talked to Trudeau mess. yesterday. He talked to Trudeau yesterday on the phone. Yeah, it'd be nice to know what is he saying? What's the plan from that? Did they just chat or then hold, oh, put our hands up in the air and wonder what's going to happen next? What is the plan? What are they going to do? What have you heard from your constituents there in, in Maple Ridge and how they were impacted by this mayhem we saw on the on the West Coast Express yesterday and this morning? What are they, what are they telling you? What kind of stories are you hearing? Well, I'm actually, you know, living the results of it. Last night I tried to go to a meeting. We had a board meeting on one of the organizations I'm part of, and we had to hold off on the meeting because people were scrambling to go and try to find alternative childcare arrangements because their partner could not get back from Vancouver. They were taking cabs. These are people who are literally, they're not making a lot of money. They're working in the nonprofit sector, and they're having to take cabs to get to their childcare to pick up their kids. This is just unconscionable that people are being put through this type of activity 
on the face of 500 people collectively coming together and deciding where they're going to disrupt our city, where they're going to disrupt our community. The government needs to be looking at it, forward-thinking. What are the like? They're sharing the strategies online. They're right. openly sharing what they're using. They're leaning into David Eby's um, Olympic um, what is it legal observer. Is Eby Eby wrote a, a back when he was with the uh, Civil Liberties Association. He wrote a handbook for right. anti-Olympic protest. Protesters. And, yeah. it, it appears some of these protesters are now used, taking a look at that book. That yeah, that's wrote. his legacy. Here, <laughs> ten years later, in the week that we're celebrating the legacies of the Olympics, David Eby is having to face his own legacy. And it would be nice if he understood that those types of strategies and his and his handbook was written from the point of you know trying to have some oversight if there were any issues of protesters civil protesters being treated unfairly by, you know, um, law, law enforcement. And that's applaudable. But at the end of the day, this is not you, how they're using it. They're using it yeah. actually to intimidate people and intimidate law enforcement. One of the things you mentioned, the injunction that the Speaker of the House, Daryl Plekos, was able to obtain. He had a lot of direct evidence that he could present in front of a judge. As I understand it, there was surveillance footage around the legislature on Tuesday with the, with the blockade going on, um, showed people making maps of doorways of the legislature and that kind of thing. So they had a lot of direct evidence that they could put in front of a judge to, to sort of illustrate this threat. What would you expect the government to do here? You say get an injunction, but what, an injunction for where? And what would be the evidence you'd put in front of a judge here to get an injunction? Well, I think there is a lot of... Um I would say investigation, there's a lot of energy being put in by the police authorities, by them looking at what are the activities, where are these people, what are they talking about online, where are they yeah. hinting they're going to go, collectively working with the police and looking at a plan of how this group is looking to impact the next location, like just the thought process, they're not allowed to go to the legislature. Was there any forethought into, well, now they might target government buildings, those types of preemptive conversations with law enforcement. Okay. How can we help you with that? How can we send a clear, strong message that you're not just going to move from okay. place to place, community to community disrupting? Thanks for coming on. You bet. Thanks for having me. I, Have a great I appreciate day. it. Have Thank you. Thank you. That is Cheryl Ashley. Uh, she is a former city councillor in Maple Ridge running for the B.C. Liberal Party in the next election in that Maple Ridge Pitt Meadows riding. I'll tell you what. That is one of those crucial swing seats, very closely contested, and the whole election uh, can be won or lost in a riding like that. So she is someone to keep an eye on here as we get closer to another election. Continue talking about the anti-pipeline blockades. The good news, the blockade of the West Coast Express is down. The train's set to roll again this afternoon, but not before thousands of people were inconvenienced again this morning with a lot of canceled trains. A lot of pressure here on both levels of government now to be tougher and more responsive with these blockades that are springing up now on a daily basis. Have a little listen to this here. Here is the federal conservative leader, Andrew Scheer, saying that Trudeau needs to get tougher. As Prime Minister, as I said, I would uh, direct the RCMP to enforce the law to ensure that our railway system uh, can operate. I mean, we have a situation. We have 
ideologically motivated protesters and activists who have, in many cases, have no connection at all with the First Nations uh, community. And they are threatening the jobs of thousands. We're hearing from uh, the union representing railway workers that up to 6,000 railway workers could face layoffs. Okay, these protesters, these activists, may have the luxury of spending days at a time at a blockade, but they need to check their privilege. They need to check their privilege and let people whose job depends on the railway system, small business, farmers, do their jobs. Okay, federal conservative leader Andrew Scheer saying the blockaders should check their privilege. A little interesting kind of uh, turnaround on his, on his language there. That they, They're the ones who got the privilege. Just checking with Brad West, the mayor of Poco. Hi, Brad. Hey, Mike. How are you? I'm good. Thanks a lot for coming on. How did this uh, shutdown of the West Coast Express yesterday and this morning affect the people in your community? Well, it created a lot of chaos, that's for sure, uh, particularly yesterday when people had no warning that this was going to happen. So this morning, you know, people who were able to made some other arrangements, um, which isn't great, but at least they had that opportunity. Uh, yesterday was uh, brutal. I mean, I spoke to a mom uh, from Port Coquitlam who is in tears. She depends on the West Coast Express to get to and from work. And just so people understand, in Port Coquitlam, Pitt Meadows, Maple Ridge, Mission, I mean, we've got thousands of people who depend on the West Coast Express. Yeah. Uh, and there's, it's not like, okay, well, the West Coast Express is shut down, so let me just hop on the SkyTrain. We don't have that option. So this is, uh, was really, really uh, chaotic. And anyway, so that, that mom... She wasn't able to get back uh, to Poco in time to pick up her two-year-old son from uh, his daycare. So not only is that upsetting for him and upsetting for her, it cost her 100 bucks. She said to me it was like I didn't get to go to work for the day because that was basically almost my day's wage gone because I got charged 100 bucks from the daycare in overage fees because uh, I was over an hour late to pick up my son. I mean, how is that fair? How, yeah, you well, know, how is that? What sort of message do these folks think they're sending? They're not. They're not sending a message to government or a politician or a company. No government politician or company are suffering the consequences of blocking the West Coast Express. It's thousands of working people in Port Coquitlam and communities out here who are suffering the consequence, and that's okay. not right. I fail to understand sometimes the strategic logic or, or lack thereof of what, they're, of what they're hoping to accomplish here, but have a little listen to this. Dwayne, if we could go back to that uh, Isabel Krupp uh, clip that we had in the, in the previous segment. Uh, now, here, uh, Mr. Mayor, this is one of the people who were blocking the train tracks. Now, here she is trying to explain what they're doing. And that means some inconvenience, and that means some sacrifice for people. And uh, we think that that should motivate people uh, who might have to miss their train or miss a day at work. That should show people how important the struggle is, and that is something that we all need to be in solidarity with. Do you think it motivates people? <laughs> well, it's pretty bloody easy to say that when you're not the person who has your life turned upside down because yeah. of this action. You know, uh, so uh, they're ob I mean. It, it's obvious to everyone that an action like that is not aimed at gaining public support. I don't think they care about gaining public support. And I'll go one step further. I don't think this particular group actually cares about the Wet'suwet'en people and the issue, because this is a group that has operated in the Tri-Cities and in Maple Ridge and Pitt Meadows before. And every month they try and fly some new banner uh, and they use it yeah. as cover to create chaos in our community. So, that's what, there's no legitimacy to this. This is not about 
the Wet'suwet'en people or this or indigenous reconciliation. This is a group of people who, uh, unfortunately, have decided to make it their life's work to create chaos and wreak havoc uh, for other people. That's all this is. Yeah. Speaking of Port Coquitlam, Mayor Brad West, in the I, earlier on the show, I spoke to Cheryl Ashley. She is running for the B.C. Liberal Party in the Maple Ridge riding, which is closely contested, very critical seat uh, in this election. Uh, she's a former city councilor there in Maple Ridge. Going after the government and saying Horrigan and, and his cabinet ministers have not been tough enough. They should be out getting injunctions. Uh, they should be uh, more outspoken in, in, a, in a more forceful response to these blockaders. What do you think about the performance of the provincial government here and their response to this? Well, I've spoken to our MLA, Minister Mike Farnworth. I mean, he was yeah. pretty strong. He said it was a disgrace what was happening and that it was wrong. Yeah, but what's now, he doing this, about it, though? Well, hold on. In, in this instance, right, this happened on CP... Uh, on the CP rail, it's private property. So, I mean, it, it, whether it was him or, or, or someone else, this one in particular, it was CP who has the responsibility and the jurisdiction to deal with it. But look, I agree that we need all hands on deck. I mean, the provincial government, uh, the federal government, in times like this, we look to senior levels of government to uh, to uh, demonstrate leadership and, and, and take action. I think it needs to be immediate. Um, but I, I just think on, on this particular instance, uh, even if, say, Minister Farnworth or the Premier had wanted to and picked up the phone and said to the RCMP, clear them out, uh, in this case, that's private CP rail property. The CP rail have their own police. Uh, and, and that was... Um, you know that that's where the buck stopped yeah. on this one. And okay, I just we just got a minute left here. Do you think that uh, the, the the I think the premier's approach to this has been obviously to show some restraint and caution, yeah. and hope that kind of defuse and de-escalate the situation. But do you think that that has perhaps the opposite of effect if it emboldens uh, the blockaders to just keep going if they think they can just get away with this stuff with impunity? Yeah, I do. I think uh, again when you're dealing with um, some folks who, it, you know, out this way, it's 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 not about the issue. It's about their desire to cause disruption and create chaos. Uh, when you when they think they have a long leash, they take advantage of it. And I think the approach needs to be the same approach as if you or I, Mike, decided that we were going to go set up shop and shut down the West Coast Express. Yeah. We wouldn't last a nanosecond. Yeah. And they would have us cleared out of there. Okay. And so the same approach should apply here. Uh, this is this is not a legitimate form of protest. This is okay. about people creating chaos, and it needs to be stopped in its tracks. Thanks for coming on. Thanks, Mike. That is Port Coquitlam Mayor Brad West. What do you think about what he said there? Phone me on the buzz line. Leave me a voicemail and tell me. 604-331-BUZZ. 604-331-2899. As we continue talking about the anti-pipeline protests and blockades, the good news this morning, the West Coast Express blockade has come down, but not before the chaos we saw yesterday and this morning with all those cancelled trains. And the blockaders there of the railroad track saying they're not going anywhere. This ain't the this ain't over. Uh, they will continue to block other transportation routes in the days ahead. And I believe them after what we've seen here the last few days. Meanwhile, at the B.C. legislature on Tuesday, uh, we saw the blockades there with protesters surrounding the building, preventing people from going inside. That was a nasty experience over there that day. And 
uh, I don't really care about myself getting stuck in it. I really felt sorry for uh, the people who work in the building who've got just nothing to do with this, you know, the, including the people who cook the French fries in the dining room or the guy who mops the floor, and they're trying to just go to work and just getting cursed out and yelled at by protesters. I thought that was appalling. The Speaker of the Legislature now, Daryl Plecka, is taking steps to prevent a repeat of that. He has secured a very sweeping injunction to prevent uh, more blockades of the legislature doors. Let's check in with his chief of staff now, Alan Mullen, on that. Hi. Hi, Mike. Good morning. Thanks a lot for coming on. What was your experience there on Tuesday at the legislature with the, with those blockades? Yeah, it was uh, quite similar to your own, Mike. Uh, I was uh, fortunate enough to, to get into the precinct early enough and into my office uh, without being impeded. But uh, some of our uh, office staff were, were affected, and I certainly spoke to a lot more legislative assembly staff who were affected. And when I say affected, I mean, uh, quite frankly, abused, uh, screaming in people's faces, uh, yelling, yelling all kinds of insults, and, uh, and in some cases being, being sort of pushed and shoved. Uh, I, I did witness uh, a minister of the crown, uh, you know, have her personal space invaded. Uh, it, it was a nasty situation. I mean, I'm all for, as is the speaker, uh, the democratic right of, of free speech and protest. And, uh, and I think it's a very important democratic right. But when you cross the line into, you know, harassing people and, and, and uh, abusing people and, and at, at times uh, assaulting people, uh, that is just not OK. And, and like you said, Mike, and it's a great point. These people have nothing to do with this. These people yeah. are, are, are like every British plumbing, going about their business, going to their, their place of work, and they're having to go through uh, this, this horrible experience. We saw this kind of coming, though, before Tuesday's throne speech day because the, the protesters had been camped out on the front steps of the legislature for several days prior to that. They had lit a fire. You could smell the wood smoke in the building that affected some people's ability to work in their offices. Uh, also covering up security cameras, which was disturbing to me. What are your thoughts on that when you found out they were covering up security cameras out there? Yeah, that was a definite concern to to the speaker and, and, and I. Uh, obviously, as you said, this, this started days prior. Uh, we were in attendance all weekend monitoring the situation. Uh, it, it, it is concerning because those security cameras uh, are there and were there long before this protest, and and they're there for the for the safety and protection of everybody, including the protesters. And we did have discussions through our legislative uh, protective services team with the protesters, and and essentially tried to explain that. Uh, but I think it should be noted that. The protesters that were there over the weekend, uh, in my view, were, were quite different to the group we saw. I mean, obviously, they were they were uh, a larger group on on, on Tuesday, but yeah. over the weekend, it was it was quite uh, a different feeling. Uh, they wanted to get their voices heard. They had a clear messaging, uh, but I think what we see then on Tuesday is a much bigger crowd, and and I think we've seen it in the past too, where. In addition to the main group with their main messaging, you have what we what we generally refer to as these sort of professional protesters coming out, and then also a very small group of people that show up at a lot of these different events but really don't know what the event is about and they don't much care. They are there to you know sort of create unrest and and you know lower the respect levels and and at times just want to create some sort of havoc. And I think. Uh, what we saw over the weekend was a respectful, uh, uh, honest protest versus Tuesday. There was uh, It had a different flavor to it and a very upsetting flavor to it. 
Okay, you guys don't want to see a repeat of it. The Speaker went to court to seek an injunction against further blockades of the doors of the legislature. He succeeded in getting the injunction, which is displayed all around the legislature building now. Tell me how that happened. How did you guys secure this injunction? What kind of evidence did you put in front of the judge? And what does the injunction say? Yeah, well, it's 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 not you know easy to get to get these types of injunctions. You need to clearly demonstrate uh, why you are seeking this this uh, injunction, and and the, the the justice that's presiding needs to be satisfied that the injunction is obviously lawful and reasonable. Uh, so we had to to clearly demonstrate uh, why, and and through that, what behaviors we saw were demonstrated because this is this is uh, an anticipatory injunction meaning the people when we got this injunction the people weren't actually on site so we're not getting an active injunction it's an anticipatory one should this happen again so what we had to clearly demonstrate was what were those behaviors well we had lots of uh, evidence and information to bring forth uh, to say uh, this is a fire hazard. Obviously, all the exits uh, and entrances were blocked, so people couldn't enter or exit. Uh, we had people pushing and shoving. We had uh, reports of assaults taking place. I mean, that's criminal activity. So, you know, when, it, when, it, when a judge is going to look at the, these requests uh, and sees that there is clear evidence uh, and reports of criminal activity, uh, that's an issue, and of course, a judge is going to consider that in his or her determination to to grant or not grant these injunctions. Okay, what does the injunction say? It's a very sweeping injunction, right? It is a very sweeping injunction. Yeah. Now, I mean, we want to make it clear that we are the biggest fans, obviously, of, like I said, that democratic right to protest. What we're not the biggest fans are of is impeding, uh, you know, sort of people getting to work. Uh, but there's a big difference between blocking someone's way and then encroaching on their personal space. So this injunction clearly says, look, protest, protest all you want on the legislative grounds. That's perfectly fine. That's always the way it's been and that's always the way it will be. But the, what, what it says is you cannot block the entrances or exits. And it clearly maps out all the entrances and exits of the, the, the legislative precinct. So as soon as, as, as any person is blocking those entrances or exits or putting up any way to obstruct uh, those, those doors, uh, you are in violation of this injunction. And, and subject to arrest? Subject to arrest. I mean, yeah. any time you get an injunction, it, it clearly says that the police retain discretion as to the timing and manner of enforcement. So obviously, you know, we've got a great professional uh, legislative protective services team in uh, you know, working in operation with the Victoria Police Department. So they would look at the situation and say, OK, do we need to act this second? Do we need to remove this person immediately? Or do we give them a warning and tell them sort of to move along? It depends on what that, that demonstrated behavior would be at that specific moment. But as per the injunction, yes, any person that violates this injunction is subject to immediate removal and or arrest. Speaking to Alan Mullen, he's the chief of staff in the Speaker's office at the legislature. The injunction, does it say anything about those security cameras and how they were covering up the cameras? It doesn't. It doesn't say that, but that would be, we, we wouldn't be allowing that again because we've got, yeah. obviously, our number one responsibility is the safety and security of, of you know, the, the legislature and everybody right. that visits it and works there. So that wouldn't be happening again because it's a it's a security concern. Uh, this is this is more with regards to 
uh, speaking about people occupying a space, and those spaces in particular, obviously, are the entrances you, and exits. We see action going on in the city of Victoria today with protesters picketing outside government offices away from the legislature grounds. What about next week, though? Next Tuesday is Budget Day, another big day at the legislature. Do you have any concerns about the budget, uh, and not only at the legislature, but also at the budget lockup, which uh, takes place uh, a couple of blocks away at the Victoria Convention Centre? Right. Well, uh, you know, obviously we, we are we are hypervigilant at this point. I mean, we saw the, the speech from the throne be effective last Tuesday. Obviously, Budget Day is very big at the legislature, so we will have our, our sort of our plans in place. And now, obviously, we are equipped with this injunction. Uh, with anything off the legislative precinct, though, the legislature and the legislative precinct is is the the responsibility of the speaker and that's why yeah. this injunction is granted to him as speaker and ultimately represents that well do you Any think other... do you think the government should get an injunction for uh, other parts uh, other buildings away from the uh, legislature uh well i mean i'm not it's not part of my position to advise government uh, one way or the yeah. other it is so, it is certainly something they they could do should they feel it's necessary but it would definitely fall to government to uh, seek those injunctions. Uh, a lot of people have asked us, does this apply to other government buildings in, in Victoria or elsewhere? And the answer to that question obviously is no. It only rep- uh, applies to the legislature. Government is responsible, as you mentioned, to these other buildings. Thank you for coming on. Pleasure as always, Mike. Okay, I appreciate it. That is Alan Mullen. He is the chief of staff in the office of Speaker Daryl Plekis at the B.C. Legislature talking about the injunction uh, that the Speaker was able to obtain against any more protesters blockading the legislature building and stopping people from going in and out of the legislature. That is a sweeping injunction that has now been displayed all around the Parliament buildings, but as you heard him describe there, does not apply to other government buildings in the capital city. Mike Smith in for Simi. Let's talk about the student driver now busted for impaired with his instructors sitting right beside him in the uh, driving school car on Sunday, February 2nd, Coquitlam RCMP. They pulled over a car for running a stop sign. A 44-year-old Coquitlam man, he's a student driver, was behind the wheel with a driving instructor beside him in the vehicle. This cop smelled booze. The student driver failed a roadside sobriety test earning a 90-day license suspension and a ticket. Have a listen to this now. RCMP Corporal Michael McLaughlin. The first thing our officer saw was a car that went through a stop sign, in his opinion, quite badly. So he pulled the car over, and of course, you never know what you're going to get. As he was speaking to the driver, he quickly picked up that there was a driving lesson going on, but he could also smell alcohol. And at that point, uh, when he could smell liquor, he had to start that investigation. This is a really unusual circumstance. It's not often that we pull over a vehicle that's in the middle of a driving lesson and then we start an impaired investigation, but that's what happened here, and it doesn't matter what you're doing behind the wheel, you cannot be impaired. You could clearly see this was a driving school vehicle. It even said student driver right on the back of the vehicle, but I mean, if you go through a stop sign, we're still going to pull you over. The driving instructor in this case appeared to be completely oblivious to the idea that the person driving might be intoxicated and impaired, but uh, Sure enough, that's where the investigation ended up. Okay. Uh, Michael McLaughlin, RCMP corporal there. Uh, let's check in now with Steve Wallace, the owner of Wallace Driving School. Hi, Steve. Hey, how are you doing, Mike? Okay. Have you ever had something like this happen to you with a, a student in your car who had been drinking? 
<laughs> not in your life. I mean, <laughs> th- this situation is is it's it shows the tip of the iceberg and the problems that are abounding in the driving school business in the Lower Mainland. And I got to tell you right now, there's 700 driving schools. Only 50 of us teach the graduated licensing course where the students get two credits for high school, plus they get six months relief of the end phase. So the rest of it is a crapshoot. I'm telling you right now that for this to happen, I would have said it's an impossibility. But the fact is that there's a crew now of investigators going around the province. There's, I think there's 12 of them, and ICBC is surveying a number of the schools, driving schools in the lower mainland. And they've taken away licenses. I know uh, the rumor mayor tells me about a dozen have already been taken away as far as schools are concerned, uh-huh. uh, you know, for poor operation. But i got to tell you something. Now, this is a catalytic event. And I believe that the government now is going to have to take some very serious action because you have three kinds of driving schools in BC. You have the ones that the 50 out of the 700 that teach the course I just mentioned. Then you have a number of other really good schools who don't teach that course but have a relatively good reputation. And then you have a bevy of hundreds of schools who are no more than car rental facilities for a road test. For an instructor to not know that a person is impaired and driving along and allowing someone to go through a stop sign, that should in itself cause a significant investigation. And I'm telling you now that there's a problem. There's a problem in this industry, and I would estimate that at least half of the driving schools uh, that are operational that do not teach the uh, graduate licensing course and have not in business for a number of years to establish a reputation are probably operating as car rental facilities for the road test and nothing more. Interesting. Is my understanding is that this particular vehicle that was pulled over in this incident was one of those special uh, driving school vehicles where the instructor on the the right-hand side of the vehicle has got his own steering wheel and his own set of brakes here just in case the student loses control of the vehicle do you, do you do you guys have those kind of cars at, at wallace driving school never we will never do that mm. the instructors have to be good enough to be ahead of the vehicle ahead of the student in every single case if you need a wheel if you need a second wheel in order to teach driving you should probably be doing something else for a living as far as i'm concerned the second wheel provision was instituted in vancouver at the result of many of the driving schools in the 60s. And that was the only jurisdiction that mandated the second wheel. But the, the hidden agenda that those driving schools had at the time is they were trying to raise the initial cost of and the investment of getting into business in order to discourage business. My philosophy is quite simple. If you need an extra wheel to teach driving, find some other profession. What happens, though, if you do something like this guy did and runs a, a stop sign, whether whether you're drunk or not? Uh, if, you, if a student is doing something reckless, what do you do as an instructor? There's only one job you have as an instructor, and you have to stay ahead of the student. That's what you have to do. If you're sitting there going, oh, I'm going to correct the mistake that the student makes when they make it, that may be the, that may be the last mistake the student makes in the last, the last breath that you have. The fact is, you're either ahead of the student or find another profession. So what, what do you mean by that? I mean, as, as you're approaching the stop sign, you're clearly telling the student, make sure you stop here? Is that what you mean? Or or, or the student's doing a running commentary and telling you what is about to happen. And yeah. you would fill in the gaps or cause the student to be taking another action 
prior to any danger taking place. You're entrusted with the safety of people in that car. That's your job. You also have to do certain things that are new to the students. So I know that the public has great compassion for driving driving schools and student drivers. I mean, I get the odd horn honked at me every so often, but the fact is that people realize, and they all think back to the time they learned how to drive and how, how stressful it was. So we get a lot of compassion. But, the, but this situation is abhorrent. Um, I find it embarrassing, and it's a lot. It's a reason why a lot of uh, a lot of uh, driving schools have not set up in that lower mainland cesspool of of driver education because you have a situation where you have phenomenally good operators, or good operators, or just terrible operators, and this was okay. one terrible operator. If you don't know that your student's drunk, if you don't know that your student is going through a stop sign, and you can't handle that. I'm not sure what phone call you might be on or what you're doing, but I, I, I would suggest you have to find another profession. My guest is Steve Wallace, owner of Wallace Driving School. Steve, one of the reasons I always like having you on is you're not afraid to, to say it like it is and, and give your opinion. Let me ask you about a hot-button topic here in our province right now, and that's those uh, anti-pipeline blockades that we've seen. And there's a, there's a driving component to this, of course, because we've seen blockades of bridges in victoria where your company operates we saw the granville street bridge lockdown earlier this week we've seen busy critical intersections in vancouver shut down with blockades what are your thoughts on these uh these blockades and how the police and the, and the province and the government has responded to them well i think that what we've seen is um a root selection so whenever we find that there's going to be a blockade you want to use that as a teaching tool and how you're going to get from a to b uh, in that situation. But what we're also finding is that the manner of protest um, is a major inconvenience for people as far as the economic uh, uh, regard. Uh, and so what we're attempting to do is you have to plan your routes and you have to give a good lesson to a student. You can't be simply going up the same highway road, you know, at infinitum. Uh, and so it really is causing us problems as far as business is concerned. And when you, when you interrupt business, you interrupt the tax load. And as such, I think that uh, we're a little stressed by the um, irregularity of where these stoppages are. Usually you can predict where the traffic's going to bunch up and yeah. you can predict what's going on. But, I mean, what would happen if you have people in a tunnel or if you have people on a bridge that are trapped there? Those are the kinds of things you have to concern yourself with. And I, I really have a problem with people who are demonstrating uh, and malaffecting other people in the economy. Let me ask one more quick question. We'll take a, a break, and then we'll get some phone calls going. We, Steve always gets a lot of calls here on rules of the road and driving behavior on our road. If you were to say right now, Steve, for people who are wondering about the rules of the road, what would you say is the most commonly misunderstood rule of, of the road in, in British Columbia? Where to stop. It's the simplest rule of all time. Yeah. There's three places the, before the sidewalk, before the white line, or where one road meets another. The stop sign has nothing to do except by fluke as to where you legally have to stop. So where do you stop? You stop before the white line if there's one present. Right. You stop right. before the natural path a pedestrian would take across your path. Or the third place is if there's no sidewalk and no white line, you stop before the grass and the road meet because that's where the pedestrians would be walking at the road's edge. Let's get right to your calls. Pete in Vancouver, hi. Hi, yeah, I ask a question for your guest. Um, when do you think the B.C. government will finally follow the research on hands-free cell phones? Because the U.S. National Safety Council, 
they've got uh, 30, count them, 30 research studies showing that there is no benefit to hands-free versus hands-held. They're both as dangerous. It's not holding the phone. It's the distraction. You decrease uh, the part of your brain that processes moving images by a third when you're listening to the phone, not just holding the phone. And you can miss up to 50% of what's happening around you visually looking outside when you're talking on any cell phone. So in terms of like reducing the people harmed by accidents and reducing all the spending on ICBC that the BC Liberal Pirate Party looted to pretend they had a balanced budget, the science is obvious. There's lots of science. Why aren't they doing something about it? Steve, Steve, your um, thoughts. Yeah. Well, when they, when they they did their first uh, consultation about the entire province, Prince George and Kamloops and Kelowna and so on, they went all through the province gathering information, and they found that the public would accept um, hands-free but not hand-held. So despite the fact you're entirely correct, 100% correct, there is no difference in the distractive quality of a phone that is being handheld or if it's voice-activated or hands-free. But what they've done is because it's been socially acceptable by the public, they've allowed hands-free but not hands-held. There is no difference. When the government is going to do it, I have no idea. So, There's a pending election within 18 months, and I don't think anything will happen until after that. So you think they should ban the use of cell phones in cars, period, even hands-free? I is think that, that if they have a hands-free option, it could be used if the, uh, if the vehicle is stopped. That's the key. Oh. Um, okay. What they've done in the United States is they've done a lot more research on this, and the single greatest likelihood of accidental death is in a car. It eclipses all other death, all other accidental death, whether it's drowning, electrocution, or anything else that you want to mention. Uh, they do not add up to death in a vehicle. So I know that the U.S. transportation industry and the regulatory authorities are looking at this now. I'm not sure how serious they are about it. And individual states actually have the authority over it. Malcolm in Vancouver. Hi. Quick question. My son has failed twice. Uh... <laughs> Actually, three times he did run a red light, and he admits that. But it was a shoulder check in the first and the third. And I think there's no standard for the testers. That's my take on it. Because what is they're telling you to do more shoulder checks. Ergo, then you're not facing the front, which is what you should be doing. So if you're doing a right-hand shoulder check, Steve, uh, you're, you're taking your eyes away from the, the potential left hand uh, and so on and so forth. So where's the standard? I, I don't believe there is one. Oh, I will they have, the yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll give you this uh, in the nutshell. Um, every single time that examiner talks to the student, if they say turn right, signal mirror shoulder. If they say pull over, signal mirror shoulder. If they say turn left, signal mirror shoulder. If they say change lane, signal mirror shoulder. That This is not a driving test. It's a checking test. And they are adamant despite the fact that you have cameras that may cover the shoulder spot, that you must, no matter what they say to you as an instruction, do signal mirror shoulder. And it's the appropriate shoulders. They pull over, you have to check over the right shoulder. And it's a quick look over the shoulder and then back to the front. That's what's on the test. Even though technology can handle it otherwise, they're always behind the technological curve. And the most common reason for failure on the test is just what you mentioned. It's the shoulder check. The second one is no complete stop. And uh, the third one is the school zone where uh, you have the 30K zone. But they okay. have to check over the right shoulder whenever that examiner talks to them. If the examiner says good morning, signal mirror shoulder, say good morning. 
because that's what the test is. It's a signal mirror shoulder observation test, not a car control test. Let's if the car is in control well, the test is immediately ended. Ed in Vancouver, hi. How are you? I'm good, Ed. Go ahead. Um, I have a question. Uh, the biggest problem I see in Vancouver driving in the lower mainland is the eagle thing where people will pull up beside you at a traffic light in the parking lane and anything to get ahead of you when the light turns green will actually burn rubber in front of you to avoid the parked cars in the next street. There seems to be this ego thing of always being ahead of someone else. If you go down Kingsway, as an example, which I just went down, there's always people raising and cutting in and out to get ahead of you. Okay, we just got a minute left. Steve Wallace. Um, I'll give you some advice on that. I don't know how you're going to stop that except through enforcement, but we use them as blockers. If they want to go by on the right-hand side, that's fine. Keep them beside you in the intersection. That way, uh, no one that I know of has ever been killed upon secondary hit at an intersection. So as such, use them as a blocker going through the intersection, then let them ahead. That way, you've got a space beside you. Between the blocks, you, try to have you as say, many spaces as you can. When you say use as a blocker, you mean keep them beside you in case there's a, a, a vehicle coming in the other direction? In case somebody blows that red light going left to right. That's the yeah. most deadly Ooh. crash is the, is the side impact, okay, the T-bone crash. So keep that vehicle there beside you as an advantage. Use it as a blocker. Let wow. the guy in at the first opportunity and then proceed. It ain't a competition, okay. and you're always going to have people like that in the traffic system. Steve, thanks for coming on. Hey, anytime, Mike. That is Steve Wallace, the owner of Wallace Driving School. Now, today, of course, February 14th, guys, don't forget, all the guys out there, it's Valentine's Day. Don't forget. Don't mess up. You still got time to get something if you need to get something. You know what I mean? As we celebrate Valentine's Day today, you may wonder, when and why did this crazy tradition begin? Our own Nikki Reitmeyer now takes a look back at the history of Valentine's Day. It's become a day about showing your love by giving gifts. But what is the origin of Valentine's Day? I'm Nikki Reitmeyer. Let's take a look at the facts around Valentine's. As you may or may not know, the day is named after a saint. There are a few different legends out there about exactly who Saint Valentine was, but one of the most popular tales goes like this. Back in the 3rd century AD, Emperor Claudius II ruled the land. He was also known as Claudius the Cruel. He led Rome into many bloody conflicts and needed a never-ending supply of soldiers for his campaigns. He believed that men didn't want to join his army because they were attached to their wives. So, what was his solution? He banned marriage. Yeah, no one was allowed to get married while Emperor Claudius was in power. But a priest named Valentine thought this wasn't fair. So he broke the law and married couples in secret. 
Eventually, the emperor found out that Valentine was marrying Christian couples in secret and converting others to Christianity. So he had Valentine thrown in jail. But always the romantic, Valentine fell in love with the jailer's daughter. Before he was taken away to be executed, he sent her a love letter signed, From Your Valentine. It was approximately February 14th in the year 269 AD that Valentine was beheaded. Now, interestingly enough, old Emperor Claudius, well, he died of an illness about a year later. Well, it's a great story. The tale of St. Valentine isn't the only reason why we celebrate Valentine's Day. No, his death also corresponded with the Feast of Lupercalia, a raunchy pagan festival on February 15th that celebrated love, sex, and fertility. It was about 500 AD when the Pope of the time decided to put an end to the Feast of Lupercalia. He replaced this pagan holiday with a Christian holiday. The Pope declared that February 14th be celebrated as St. Valentine's Day instead. The oldest known Valentine's Day card dates back to the year 1415. It was written by a young French duke who'd been captured in battle and was being held in the infamous Tower of London. While imprisoned, he wrote a poem to his wife. He wrote, My very gentle Valentine, since for me you were born too soon and I for you was born too late. God forgives him who has estranged me from you for the whole year. I am already sick of love, my very gentle Valentine. Sadly, they never saw each other again. A couple hundred years later, Valentine's Day got a mention by William Shakespeare in Hamlet, dating back to the year 1600. In the play, Ophelia says, Tomorrow is St. Valentine's Day. All in the morning be time, and I am made at your window to be your Valentine. That's from William Shakespeare's Hamlet. But the most famous Valentine's Day poem we're familiar with starts with Roses are red, violets are blue, and it dates back to the 1700s. The rose is red, the violet's blue, the honey's sweet, and so are you. Thou art my love, and I am thine. I drew thee to my valentine. The lot was cast, and then I drew. And fortune said, it should be you. Skip forward another couple hundred years. In 1913, a little company started creating Valentine's Day cards that lovers could send to each other. You might be familiar with this company. They're called Hallmark. Let me call you sweetheart. I'm in love with you. Today in North America, nearly 200 million Valentines are exchanged each year. Love me 
call you sweetheart. I'm in love with you. So that's the history of Valentine's Day. Started with the priest who married couples in defiance of the law. A celebration for that priest replaced a pagan love festival. Then it started to build up in popular culture with artists of the time like Shakespeare, before being commercialized by companies like Hallmark. Now you have a little trivia to share tonight during your Valentine's Day dinner. For 980 CKNW, I'm Nikki Reitmeyer. Talk about the move to get rid of the RCMP in Surrey and bring in a local municipal police force. Of course, a key promise of Surrey Mayor Doug McCallum as he continues to drive forward with that. The uh, new recently appointed top RCMP officer in Surrey, his name is Brian Edwards, saying he still feels confident about the RCMP in the city, even though the city continues to move to that looming shift toward a municipal police force. The city recently declared an RCMP Appreciation Day in the city of Surrey, and I think a lot of people do appreciate the Mounties. But uh, as the municipal government continues to press ahead with a local police force, still a lot of questions about how this is going to work. How many cops will be on the ground in the city of Surrey? How much it's going to cost, I think, is a big one. And whether the city should actually go ahead and go through with this or... Should they keep the RCMP in Surrey? Some people would like to see that. Could be tough to do if the city continues to drive forward. Phone me up on it and tell me what you think. Do you want to keep the RCMP in Surrey, or would you like to go to a municipal police force? Phone me on that right now. 604-280-9898 is the number. 604-280-9898, star 9898 on your cell, a 40,000-name petition to keep the RCMP in Surrey being delivered to the Premier's office. Let's check in now with Ivan Scott with the Keep the RCMP in Surrey campaign. Very pleased to welcome him back. Hi, Ivan. Hello, Michael. Good, morning. Good day to you. Nice to talk to you again. I don't have to phone in, do I, to uh, give my opinion on whether they should stay or not? No, you've, we've already got you on the line, so you don't have to phone. So, <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, tell me about your petition. Well, today we took a 40,008 signature petition downtown Vancouver to the, uh, the, the, uh, uh, the premier's offices, and we handed, over, we handed it over to him, and uh, this is a culmination of a lot of hard work. And, a, and uh, you know, when you said the other day that some people might want to keep them, this is more than some, Michael. We're speaking on behalf of thousands and thousands of people. Right, 40,000. Okay, that's a lot of names. I'll give you that for sure. Why do people want to keep the RCMP in Surrey, the people who signed your petition? Well, they're really incensed with the way that the mayor just went ahead and declared that uh, that he would get rid of them. He's had no transparency up to there. There's been no consultation. Any consultation that he talks about is his own definition, which is not consultation at all. And uh, they're really annoyed with the way that the whole thing has gone. If, if they'd come out and said, well, let's ask around, have a, have a referendum, everybody would have been okay with that. I would have been okay with that. And whatever, whichever way it fell, I would have been okay with that. Okay, of course, if the mayor was here, he would say, and he said this frequently before, that there's already been a referendum. It was called the election, and he ran very clearly on a platform to get rid of the RCMP and bring in a local force, and he won. 
Well, he went. To, he, he came out with it. Was part of his uh, his uh, platform, and I agree, it was there. But yeah. at, he, at no stage did he actually say what it, how, when it would take place, or how it would take place, or whatever. And people would, were coming to me and saying afterwards, you know, if he'd only said that, you know, we're gonna we're gonna look at this in the way that uh, that Richmond did it, uh, everybody would be okay yeah. with that. Okay, for you, is it? You're very passionate about this. You've been fighting so hard to keep the Mounties in Surrey. For you, is it just a question of an unfair process that was followed for it, or do you think there? What are the? Are there some compelling reasons in your mind to keep the Mounties in the city? Well, Michael, I believe that we've got the pristine force of the world and recognised in the world as one of the top forces in the world, professional force there. It's been our icon for in Canada. It still is our icon in Canada. They've been in Surrey since 1950. Uh, all of a sudden, they're uh, they're useless. Uh, I mean, I can't go with that, and uh, it just it's just sticks in my. Okay, did, did we lose recourse to, oh, to people? Okay, uh, we got some calls in the open line. If you want to get a jump on board in our conversation, call me up six zero four two eight zero ninety eight ninety eight is the number. Star ninety eight ninety eight on your cell. Mark and Langley, hi. Hi there. How are you today? I'm I'm good. What do you think? I guess the one question, and I mean, I've got nothing against the RCMP in Surrey, and that's where I actually live. But if the RCMP is the best route to go, the cheapest, most efficient force, why isn't VPD, why isn't Abbotsford, why isn't Montreal, Toronto, and every other major city of the RCMP? Okay, okay, Mark, what would you say to that, Ivan? If the RCMP are so good, how come other cities don't have it? Well, they are so good. That's why we've had them for nearly 70 years. Yeah. Uh, the uh, VPD has been, has, uh, has been around since the, uh, the late uh, 1800s. So, you know, it's, it's, difficult, it's ridiculous to, to compare one to the other. They had never had them, so there's been no comparison with that. Yeah. What do you say to the argument that, and, and for example, Kirk, uh, Kurt Griffith's uh, the respected criminologist over at Simon Fraser University who did, who did some of the reports recommending this would be a good idea to transition to a local force. You know, he argues that the RCMP was never really set up to do big-time urban policing. It, it's been more of a, a rural uh, police force in, in the city of Canada. And when you got a growing, large city, like a city like Surrey, that it's more suited to a local municipal police force than the Mounties. What, what do you say to that argument? Well, yes, uh, this, that was the intention when it was uh, years and years and years ago, and that sort of thing. But they've evolved. They, they've got a beautiful model over here. Um, you know, talking to uh, the local, you talked about Brian Edwards there. I know that he's passionately wants to stay, and he'd, he'd tell anybody that at all. And he believes in what it is, and he believes that, you know, they're, this is their city they are part of it and uh they want to be reckoned they want to stay okay speaking to ivan scott with keep the rcmp in surrey bill in surrey on the open line hey bill yes how are you doing i Good. just uh wish there was a referendum too because um it's just too much complication to just uh go ahead and do it um referendum and i say keep the rcmp just hire more help that's all because it's a lot cheaper and RCP does a good, great job. Thank okay, you very much. All right, Bill. Thanks for the call. Well, when you talk about the numbers, uh, the sort of raw numbers of cops in Surrey and boots on the ground, I think this is maybe one of the things that surprised people, Ivan, when the transition plan came out and they saw that, wait a minute, 
okay, we're going to go to a local force. We're going to have fewer cops, not more. I mean, this is a city we need more, right? <laughs> who, who said that? <laughs> I know. What so, do you think uh, of yeah. that? Do, we need, do you need more police officers in Surrey? Of course we do. Yeah. Of course we yeah. do, Michael. And, and the thing is, one people, you know, people say that they're cheaper. It's not that they are cheap. Their value but now let's make them more valuable. If you took 15, if you, if you gave them all an increase, just for example, if you gave them all an increase of 15% and you brought another, 15, uh, another 150 cops in there, the, you would pay less by far than what you did by, by using the, uh, a proper VPD model. Because this model that he's talked about, when, when it comes out, it'll be like the SkyTrain. Oh, we didn't really realize that uh, we actually needed more of these guys. And so this is, this is why we, you know, it's going to go up again. So, yeah. no, it's disingenuous. The whole thing is completely disingenuous. Andrew on the open line. Hi. Hi. Okay, three quick uh, points. First of all, he was, he was elected almost exclusively on the LRT SkyTrain <coughs> issue. <clears throat> so we were furious that the politicians weren't listening to him on that. He was the only one who was actually following through on getting SkyTrain versus LRT. Yeah. Two. His people, the people that backed him, they, the big reason they want a local police force is they want to be able to control the police board. They cannot control the RCMP. They want to control the police board. And his methods of going about between the police and the LRT SkyTrain issue, he's been full of misinformation from day one. He's not listening to the people of Surrey. And if he's, if he's that confident, then let's do the referendum. All right, Andrew, thank you for the call. Let's squeeze a few more calls in here. We've got quite a few of them. Tanya, hi. Hi. Hi there. What do you think? Um, I'm still supporting the non-RCMP because one thing is accountability directly to council. Right. I appreciate this guy making the effort, but it annoys me every time he comes on or I hear about him. There's, I think, 550,000 residents in, D- in uh, Surrey, and he's got a petition with 40,000. Can someone start a change.org that's easy to sign so I can sign in support of the Surrey Police Force? Okay, Ivan, what do you say to her? Well, you start it, my dear. Well, no, I don't, <laughs> I don't have enough time. I'll just sign it if somebody will. And I appreciate all well, the effort you well, put well, in on your well, behalf. Well, that's you the know? difference. You know, you can, you can talk one thing and you don't want to walk the walk. I'm sorry. I've you spoken. Know. I've, I'm, I'm representing... I've spoken with the Delta RCMP. I've spoken with police officers. I poll. I've only met one officer, actually, even RCMP. Um, that wouldn't support the change. It's very good for our city. It's it's uh, more local-based. We can have more accountability, and I 100% support it. I couldn't disagree with you more. All right, That's Tan- why we all have our own opinions. Thank, thank you, Tanya, for the call. I mean... What about that local accountability argument, though, Ivan? I mean, this is a frequent one that's raised that the the ultimate responsibility for the RCMP, I guess they report ultimately back to Ottawa headquarters, but if you have a local municipal police department, they'll be responsible to a local municipal police board. Isn't that a better better situation for accountability? Michael, we've talked about this. I've talked about this on numerous occasions. It's possible to have a, a local police board with the RCMP. If you want a local police board, you can you can institute it tomorrow with the RCMP. There, there are models around the whole of Canada these days that have got those. It's coming in. There's no doubt about that. I don't know what local accountability means. I know that the RCMP is here on a contract. They have a contract to work with the uh, with with the city of Surrey. The, um, the, uh, the mayor is in charge of that contract. He has not given them, he's not fulfilled his bargain of the contract. And he blames the, because he hasn't done that, yeah. 
that he blames now all the ills of um, of Surrey on the local RCMP, and uh, he just wants more. Con- he wants to assume more control. Squeeze in one more call, Bob. Hi. Hi there. Hi. Go ahead. Well, I don't. I, I don't agree with uh, with your uh, petition one iota. We had an election, and clearly, in that election, the citizens of Surrey said yes to the mayor. We want our own police force. Every city or every major city has their own police force, and it's just time that Surrey grew up and had their own. Okay, so Bob. We had the election, and yeah. that's it. Bob, thank you for the call. Real quickly, Ivan, where does your petition go from here? Where, where does the is it is it too late? Do you think this can still be stopped? No, I think it's going to. I think it's actually going to stop it. I, we went this morning and gave it over to Mr. Hogan's uh, offices. We were we were uh, welcomed in very very courteously. We were very courteous in what the way we did it. I was very pleased with that. They said that he would be getting it. There's right. been no uh, there's been nothing out of their offices at this particular point in time that uh, leads us to think that uh, we're not going to have any impact. I think because we we've got this forty thousand, which is you know, 40,000, that's nearly 20% of the voting population of, uh, of Surrey. I mean, okay. who gets that? I so, know, you know, I... And we've, we've got so many other people behind us. The Surrey Board of Trade is behind us with their 6,000 businesses. We've got uh, CARP, who represent 2,000 people in Surrey and 330,000 people across Canada. We've got the uh, National Police Federation, who uh, represent 19,000 Okay. RCMP people, you know, I mean, we, we've got, we've got the, I believe I talk on, on behalf of thousands of people. Thanks for coming on. Always nice to talk to you, Mark. Okay, likewise, thank you. That's Ivan Scott, Keep the RCMP and Surrey. 40,000 names on that petition delivered to Premier John Horgan's office today. Thanks a lot for all your calls on that, too.